Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey there, Food Junkies listeners. Listen, if you missed last week's episode, don't worry about it. You're going to go back and listen to it right after you listen to this one. But in the meantime, I'll catch you up. After earning a BS in biochemistry at the University of Virginia, Dr. Guillenet completed a PhD in neuroscience at the University of Washington, then went on to study the neuroscience of obesity and eating behavior as a postdoctoral fellow. He has spent a total of 12 years in the neuroscience research world studying neurodegenerative disease and the neuroscience of body fatness. His publications in scientific journals have been cited more than 3,600 times by peers. Today, Dr. Guillenet continues his mission to advance science and public health as a researcher, science consultant, and science communicator. His book, The Hungry Brain, was released in February of 2017. It was named one of the best books of the year by Publishers Weekly and called, quote, essential by the New York Times Book Review. Dr. Guillenet is a senior researcher at GiveWell and scientific reviewer for the examine.com Research Digest. Dr. Guillenet is the founder and director of Red Pen Reviews, which publishes the most informative, consistent, and unbiased popular health and nutrition book reviews available. He is the primary designer of an innovative course-based body weight management program called the Ideal Weight Program, which is part of the Human OS platform. Dr. Guillenet periodically contributes to the scientific literature and is a review editor at Frontiers in Nutrition. Today, Clarissa and I spoke with Dr. Guillenet about his thoughts on food addiction, food selection, motivational states, craving as a whole, and craving of specific foods, genetic role, medications, exercise, body set point, and so much more. Welcome back, Dr. Guillenet. All right. We are so excited to have Stefan Guillenet back for part two of our interview with him. So we're just going to dive right in. And I'm curious, what are your thoughts on food addiction? Is it real? Can we become addicted to food? Yeah. So I wrote an article on this question for examine.com. So anyone who's interested in a detailed treatment of it can look up this article food addiction, is it real and does that matter? Um, but you know, one thing I'll add, so, so I'll describe this from two perspectives, the perspective of the scientific and medical communities, and then my own personal perspective. And in that article, you're not going to find my personal perspective very much. So I'll give that to you here. So essentially it's, it's controversial in the scientific literature, in the medical literature, it's a very controversial concept you have advocates who are advocating for the food addiction concept. They think that some eating behaviors are similar enough to addiction, you know, recognized types of addiction like drug addiction that we, sh- we can use that label. You have other people who are saying, no, you can't call this addiction. You know, we have to eat food. How could you be addicted to something that you have to, to eat? And so there's these kind of two camps that are, I think, good-naturedly debating one another over this this concept. And currently, it is 
not widely recognized as a medical condition. So if you look, for example, in the DSM-5, which is the reference manual for diagnosis of mental conditions in the United States, what you find is that it's not in there. Primarily, the addictive conditions that they deal with there in there are drug addictions, with one exception, which is gambling disorder. So that's kind of the state of the scientific evidence or the scientific community and the medical communities. However, you know, I think what everyone recognizes on both sides, what everyone seems to recognize, as far as I can tell on both sides, is that there are definitely motivational states that can occur in response to certain foods that have features in common with addiction. So I think everyone recognizes that. And the question really is, is this similar enough to something like drug addiction that we really want to put the label addiction on it? But I think pretty much everyone agrees that some people do experience addiction-like behaviors in response to certain types of food. And so I think that's kind of like the baseline of agreement. My personal opinion is, yeah, I think food addiction, probably. I think we probably can call it addiction in some people. To me, like the simplest definition of addiction is that someone is engaging in a reward-driven behavior that's harming them. And they, they are doing something that, you know, they have this, they're drawn to it, they have a hard time controlling it, and it's damaging their life. And I mean, that seems kind of like obviously to be the case for some people's eating behavior, right? That's that's my perspective. And I think this is also my personal opinion. I think part of the resistance to the food addiction concept is people don't want to deal with the consequences of accepting that idea. So what does that say about our eating behaviors, about our relationship with foods and the types of foods that we eat if we accept that it can be addictive? I think at that point, you have to say like, you have to kind of... If you you accept that that's true, then you have to accept that a lot of people to varying degrees have deeply maladaptive relationships with, with food. And I think that's true. And I think a lot of people just really resist the implications of that because it's so huge and maybe because it applies to them too. So that's my thinking. So I don't want to impose my opinion on everybody else. So I'm trying to also relay what the kind of you know scientific and medical communities are saying, but that's my personal feeling on the matter. Well, I think that you have a really unique perspective considering your research and what you know and understand from that aspect, but also the fact that, hello, you're a real human being who also has to live in the same overstimulating environments that the rest of us do. And so thinking about that, all your research, what you know about obesity and, you know, food addiction, whether or not, you know, it's, it's agreed upon, you know, how do you personally select food or how can we select food and how do we make good food selections for our children and other dependents to minimize this exposure? Yeah. So I want to start off by saying that there's some context, I think, to answering this question. And the context is that different people have very different levels of susceptibility to this type of thing. And so, you know, some people may be very susceptible to addiction like eating behavior. Other people may really not be. I have friends who just like can eat the most like delicious calorie dense food and just have a little bit of it and be satisfied and 
doesn't like, that's fine. It doesn't lead them to, you know, lose control. Like they're always in control no matter how much they eat. And then I have other people who are on the other end of the spectrum who I know. And so I think a lot depends on, you know, who you are and what your goals are. So, but I think in general, you know, one, one point I want to make and one point that I make in my examine.com article is that even if you're not addicted to food, most people can still be driven to overconsume by uh, highly motivating or stimulating or however you want to put it, craveable foods. And so I think most people are somewhere on the spectrum, even if it's, even if they're not being driven to such a degree that it's like that you might call it addiction, but people who are on the far end of that spectrum and who are really having big problems would have, you know, stronger reason to be stricter about how they plan their eating behavior. And so I think for me, just as like general, my general blanket approach for the average person is to eat food that is primarily unrefined or less refined and lower in calorie density. So essentially trying to avoid the foods that are calorie dense combinations of carbohydrate and fat, especially refined carbohydrate and isolated fats that really tend to push people's reward buttons the most kind of limiting those types of foods and then also limiting food cues in the environment. So I think we might've talked about this a little bit last time, but if you're someone who's trying to quit smoking, you want to limit cues that remind you of smoking because those cues are the things that trigger your motivational state. And that's not specific to drugs. That's just how the reward system works. It is your motivations are triggered by cues. So visual cues or smell cues, you smell the pizza or you see the box or you walk by, you know, the pizza hut or whatever, that cue is going to trigger the motivational state. And so, you know, not having those cues around is, is another tool. So it's not, I'm just making the point that it's not just about the food selection. It's also about controlling the food environment. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. I definitely know with clients that I work with that are triggered easily by cues. I say, if it's in the house, it's in your mouth, right? Because there's going to be that moment where you're going to be vulnerable. So can you speak a little bit more about the motivational states other than seeking food and water? Can you give examples of motivational states and specifically, you know, factor into that craving drive addiction like behavior with those ultra processed hyper palatable foods? Yeah. So, you know, obviously we can be motivated to engage in a, a wide variety of behaviors and food is one that we're all familiar with. And then there is drug related motivation. So if you look at the drugs that stimulate, if you look at drugs that are habit forming and sometimes addictive, they're all drugs that act on the same brain systems related to dopamine and the ventral striatum and essentially, or ventral and dorsal striatum, I should say. And essentially, these are all drugs that stimulate that same pathway, which is a key motivational pathway in the brain. And this is the really like visceral type of motivation that you might experience as a, a craving state. 
And so for drugs of abuse, like the really addictive drugs like methamphetamine or crack cocaine, they cause massive, massive dopamine spikes in the brain, especially in the striatum, but also in other associated brain regions. They cause spikes that are larger than anything you would experience with a natural stimulus like food or sex. And so they create correspondingly larger motivational states. And so that's why, you know, these really addictive drugs can cause people to really ruin their lives because what the system does is it sets your motivational intensity toward the rewarding stimulus. So it can make you really pursue that goal really, really hard if you have a lot of dopamine release happening. And it also reprioritizes your behaviors. So if you previously, you know, if your highest priority before was like going to work and taking care of your family and you become addicted to methamphetamine, maybe your highest priority now is acquiring more of the drug and then, you know, taking care of your family and going to work or are way down the list. And, you know, that's a lot of what gets people into, into trouble is they're deprioritizing important constructive behaviors. And so I, I like to look at drug addiction because it's a really like pure example of what the system does when it's driven really hard. And, um, but, you know, these systems didn't evolve to get us addicted to drugs, right? They evolved to guide us toward healthy, constructive stimuli that would have supported the survival and reproduction of our ancestors. And so when you're talking about natural stimuli, like eating and sex and and other things that can motivate us, you don't get the same level of dopamine release. But you, I guess the point I'm trying to make right now is that this, you know, having dopamine release, having these motivational states, having behavioral reprioritization as a result of this process is not inherently a bad thing. It's not inherently an unhealthy thing. It's just that when it gets driven too hard, it can become unhealthy and maladaptive. And so that's how it is with food. You have, you know, like if you eat an apple, you're going to get some dopamine release. If you eat some broccoli with some sauce on it, you're going to get some dopamine release. But that's probably not going to be in the maladaptive range. That's probably not going to lead to problematic eating behaviors. On the other hand, we have foods today that because of their physical and chemical properties are expected to cause a lot more dopamine release than that. So the brain has certain nutrients, certain physical and, and chemical properties in foods that it's looking for. And I'm not talking about like, you know, contaminants. I'm talking about the nutrients in the food. And if you basically max all of that stuff out through, you know, processing or, you know, either your food corporation that's trying to make a food that people will buy as much as possible, or your grandma and you're just really good at making cookies. Um, if you're really good at maxing out those properties, you can get dopamine release that is higher than that is presumably higher than what our ancestors would have experienced eating simple, natural, unrefined foods. If you look at natural foods, you don't like there's nothing equivalent to a chocolate chip cookie in the wild nutritionally. There's nothing equivalent to, you know, pizza or french fries. It's like 
you would struggle to find more than a couple of examples where there's carbohydrate and fat in the same item. And when you do, it's usually in an unrefined situation, like nuts, for example. And if you're a hunter gatherer, you don't even have salt. So like the best you can do is roast those nuts and eat them. So I think that you have a situation today, and this is something Ashley Gearhart talks about. She's one of the researchers who advocates for the food addiction concept where you have foods that are expected to cause a lot more dopamine release than what we evolved for. And then that generates correspondingly stronger motivational states. So I think I uh, probably went a little off piece there, but no, I think that that answered your question. Absolutely. I think it leads right into what my next question was, you know, talking about that fatty sweet or that fatty savory combination and knowing that your research really kind of has shown that. And, and, along with past research, you know, we have clients insist that they can't eat a potato or a sweet potato or, you know, something along those lines. And what we're wondering is like, does the research show that there is a craving phenomenon with those kinds of foods, or is it more likely it's fear of weight gain diet culture that's getting in there that causes these individuals to insist that they need to abstain from eating those things? Yeah, this is an interesting question. I think this is a place where I would like to hear your perspective on it. I'll tell you what I know from what I've seen in the scientific literature. And and just to be clear, you were talking about my research. I am not like, I didn't do these studies. I'm just somebody who has kind of read about these studies and put it together. So I'll just tell you what the scientific literature shows. And then I'll be curious to hear your reaction from the, the patient perspective. If you look at the scientific research, what you see is that there are a number of survey studies that have been done where they ask people what foods most commonly trigger their cravings. And then there are some that ask people what foods most commonly trigger addiction-like eating behaviors. And what you see is most typically the foods that are at the top of these types of lists that are most commonly cited are calorie-dense combinations of fat and carbohydrates. So things like chocolate is usually number one. So that's the most commonly craved food. And then you'll see things like, as you mentioned, the savory ones like French fries. So savory combinations of fat and starch and usually salt as well. You'll see like snack foods like popcorn and Cheez-It type snacks. And then you'll see the sweet stuff, like a lot of baked goods, like cakes and cookies and that sort of thing. So those are the ones that top the charts in the literature. And that's not to say that there aren't other foods that come up. So you do see there are some people who report cravings and addiction-like behavior to more simple carbohydrate foods. So foods that don't also have the fat, it's just less common. And... So a couple of questions for you then. I'm interested, first, just your general reaction to that. Do you think that's consistent with what you see in the patient population that you work with? And second, I'm curious with the like potatoes and sweet potatoes that you mentioned, whether people are putting fat on them or whether we're talking about just a plain potato or a plain sweet potato, because that's a very different scenario. Yeah, I was going to say that exact thing. I think when we come to, you know, 
either potatoes or rice. It's like, we want to put the soy sauce and the salt, and then we're kind of turning it into more of a processed like food. And same with potato. It's like a dollop of butter because, you know, fat doesn't make you fat and then salt's good for you. So I'm adding that. And then maybe that combination can be more addictive. But I would say along the lines that I see clinically is definitely those hyper-processed foods that are the ones that create obsession of the mind. And really people, once they take one bite, it's one binge. Yeah. I would have to agree with that. And, and I think it probably does line up with what you were saying, like you've read in the literature is that there are those people. I mean, I believe somebody, if they show up and they say, listen, if I eat that thing, like it's, it's literally like alcohol in my brain or like meth in my Mm -hmm. brain. I mean, I'm going to believe them, but when we actually get down to the brass tacks of it all, it seems like it usually shakes out to, you know, diet culture has them so in fear of, right. You know, it's keto, this and paleo that, and all these things and and nothing against those ways of eating, but we definitely have people who are over restricting because of that. And I think that that starts to play into some of what you're finding with your work with obesity and what we're coming to learn more and more with binge eating disorder and that kind of thing. And so I was just curious to know, what your professional opinion was or what you were seeing. Yeah. So I, regarding the issue of whether restriction could be contributing, I don't know the answer to that. I don't really have, I wouldn't say that I really know much about that, but yeah, it was interesting hearing your perspective from the the patient side. Thanks for that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we certainly have individuals who've been in a bigger body, have gotten down to a lower weight. And then what if I had this potato and it makes me start going back up in weight, which is can be very scary, right? But I'm also, after listening to your first interview, thinking like, hey, your body is also driving you to want to eat more. And that may contribute to some of the binge behavior that mm-hmm. they think is just you know, restricting as they try to put on a little bit more weight, then they get a little bit more restrictive. And then it just kind of keeps continuing to go back up. And they think it's because they're not following the food plan or doing things Mm -hmm. right, but it's more biological than they understand is that driver, right? I think, I think that's right. Yeah. If, If we're talking about someone who is weight reduced, someone who has lost weight, I think there is going to be a component of that your brain is going to set the conditions for you to basically fail at the drop of a hat to maintain that weight. Cause you know, as, as we discussed your the non-conscious parts of your brain that regulate body weight are, they don't really want you to remain slim. So they're going to, they're going to push back, but I will say, you know, related to carbohydrate restriction, you know, if someone lost weight, by going on a low carb diet, which is a legitimate weight loss method. And then they add carbohydrate intake. They add carbohydrate back in after that It is not surprising that they would start to gain weight as well. Because I mean, the general principle is if you go on a weight loss diet, you have to maintain that change. If you want your weight to stay down, if you don't maintain that change, if you go back to how you were eating, then your weight will go back up. So it's not surprising in the context of carbohydrate restriction that, you know, eating carbohydrate would tend to promote weight regain. I think if you were someone who had lost weight by a low fat diet, then eating a potato is probably not going to have that effect on you. You probably eat potatoes all the time, 
So I think in the context of low carb, that, that does make sense. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I mean, we are not weight loss professionals, right? We are here to help people create peace and a a healthy relationship with food. And so it's important for us to have these conversations to just help them hear that, Hey, maybe this is what's going on here. And, you know, is my behavior in relation to fear of weight gain rather than actual food addiction at this point? I wondered if you could touch on, and we know that, you know, genetics, a pre-genetic disposition to addiction can exist. Does it also play a role in motivational states or craving? Yeah. So I will say that there hasn't been a lot of genetic research on food addiction per se. As I'm sure you're aware, the literature is still pretty young on food addiction, But there have been genetic studies on related conditions. So we have studies on drug addiction, and those show very substantial genetic influences on susceptibility. And then you also have binge eating disorder, which has a strong genetic component. And that is uh, commonly comorbid with food addiction or addiction-like eating behavior. And then the big picture is that practically everything is genetic. (laughs) So, I mean, if you look at human traits, almost anything you can measure, even brain-related stuff, stuff related to personality, usually has a strong genetic component. It doesn't mean it's entirely genetic, but it usually is strongly genetically influenced. And so I think, you know, even if we knew nothing at all about any condition related to food addiction, addiction like eating behavior, I think it would be a pretty good guess that it has a genetic component. So I think the big picture, we can be, even though it hasn't been directly studied, I would be very, very surprised if it didn't have a strong genetic component. And, you know, to answer the more specifically, the question that you asked, I think that's true for motivational states in general, including food addiction. So you may have already answered this and I'm just not quite clear on it. So genetics, yes, may absolutely. What about, you know, so those could definitely maybe potentially probably play a role in cravings. Cause I think about, you know, somewhere I've read in some scientific literature, I've read about the D2 receptor and if, you know, like the alcoholic parent, you know, the parent with alcohol use disorder and then like food or something has shown up then in, in generations after, but could cravings, because I mean, and I watched your presentation on cravings from a few years ago and I've given it out to plenty of clients. Cause I'm like, here, you have to go watch this. <laughs> could cravings also, or could over restriction come from, or, or cravings come from a place of over restriction and separate from that, how would we know if we've become overly restrictive in our food selection? Because I know that's a big component of your craving presentation that you gave was on food selections. Yeah. I mean, I think the basic principle with knowing whether you're being overly restrictive is whether it's harming your life. Like, is this thing that you're doing improving your life or making it worse? And that would be kind of the basic principle that I would apply, you know, maybe someone's getting some benefit from it, but they're obsessing over it and it's making them feel bad and it's causing other problems and it's just not worth it on, you know, cost benefit. I think that's kind of the framing that I would jump to on that. As far as, is it causing food addiction? I don't know. I mean, I think there are some 
So there's one aspect of this that I don't know much about, which is could restriction lead to addiction? I know there are studies in rodents where if they intermittently restrict access to highly desired foods, that can lead to an addiction-like state in those animals. So, I mean, there is some basis for it. But on the other hand, like for people who are highly susceptible to addiction, like eating behavior, having a totally unrestricted diet might not be a good idea either. And so, I mean, I think restriction in general is not necessarily an unhealthy thing to do. I think we do it all the time and in many ways in our lives. And it's just part of being an adult. Like, you know, when we have angry feelings, we don't just like hit people, you know, we have certain ways in which we restrain ourselves in order to live better lives. And part of that is making food choices in order to to be healthy and happy. So I think some amount of restriction is totally logical and not necessarily harmful, but it can. And I think for people who have real problems with certain foods, I think that, you know, it's obviously makes a lot of sense to restrict those foods. If you're the type of person where you get exposed to that and it's going to totally derail you in terms of your eating behaviors. And we have this scenario where it's just a basic psychological phenomenon where if you don't expose yourself to a reward over time, it's power on you. It's power over you diminishes. And just coming back to the example of cigarette smoking you know, it's really hard for the first day to quit smoking cigarettes. It's pretty hard for the next week. It's kind of hard for the next month. But then a year from then, it's like, ooh, cigarettes are gross. How did I ever smoke a cigarette? So it's like the power over your brain diminishes if you're not constantly feeding that craving. So I think in that sense, restriction makes sense. But, you know, I, I recognize that there are some people that can take it too far and it becomes an obsession and it becomes a source of fear. And there's a name for this, orthorexia. I don't know. Are you probably familiar with that term? So I think, you know, it's something to be aware of and watch for, but I don't think that's a reason for, you know, not making smart choices about which foods you eat and which foods you don't eat. Yeah, no, I love everything that you just said because I I can certainly identify times in my life where I had restricted so much food that I got to the weight that I wanted, but the only thing that was good in my life at that point is my weight, right? Everything else in my life is chaos. But now, you know, I just really I restrict, which I don't think is a bad word. For me, it creates freedom, those foods that make me obsess and make me feel like I am out of control around food. So I just really appreciate that. I was also wondering, what can we do about these cravings? Do you think like medications, surgery? Yeah. So, you know, I don't work with patients, so I'll give you some real general thoughts, but there are probably other people who have better perspectives on this than I do. So, you know, reducing exposure to those cues is a strategy is that strategy that we talked about. So, you know, not exposing yourself to the sight or the smell or proximity of, of these foods that trigger problematic eating behaviors, that would be, you know, a good place to start. 
There are other treatment options as well. So there are psychotherapy-based options. There is cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, is one option. There are other options as well. So you mentioned drugs. So for example, there's naltrexone, bupropion is one combination that's known to reduce food cravings. There's semaglutide, also known as Wegovy, for people with obesity. That reduces cravings quite substantially. And you know, just going based on the research that's been done and uh, patient experiences that I'm familiar with, I'm not aware that there has been research directly on food addiction per se, but I would expect it to be fairly effective for food addiction based on the impact that it has on cravings which is quite substantial. So that is something that's the new highly effective weight loss drug. So part of how it operates is by affecting this food reward system that impacts our cravings and stuff. So that's another possibility, but that's going to be primarily for people who have obesity for at least for now. And then there's bariatric surgery. And, you know, I don't think that's something you would get just for food addiction. But if you're someone who has food addiction and also has uh, obesity, particularly pronounced obesity, like body mass index over 35 or 40, that also has been shown to reduce food addiction scores. So those are some possibilities, but, you know, I would say, you know, if you're somebody listening who feels like they have food addiction or has addiction like behavior and want help, I would say, you know, go see a doctor who has experience with this. And that would be a good first place to start. Yeah. I, I read the articles that you wrote on the medications and then it like sent me down this rabbit hole. And then I just saw that there's a new one, Lily. I want to say it's called, and it like has even bigger effect than the some like I can't say the word, the uh, one that you just said, we we And so it's just interesting how more and more medications, right? Like it's a real issue. Obesity is a real issue. And so, you know, everybody's doing what they can to try to come up with some interventions. So my question about that is you know, and you answered this in the article, but certainly I, I would like for folks to hear, you know, if you go the medication route, is it forever or does it change things? And I can eventually come off of it. And, and if not, are there any long-term solutions? Yeah. So unfortunately, as far as we can tell, your weight only remains reduced for as long as you're on the drug. So there's even a trial of this where they put people on the drug, Wegovy, their weight went down and down and down, and then they withdrew the drug. They either, what they did was they switched people after like, I can't remember exactly how much time, six months or something. And then they divided people randomly in half and switched half of them to placebo pills. And the other half continued on the Wegovy. And the people who went on the placebo pills regained, they started regaining as soon as they stopped taking the, the so sorry, it's not pills, it's, it's an injection, but they started regaining as soon as they um, went off of that week of the injection. And so, yes, it is something that has to be ongoing for the results to be maintained. So in that sense, it's the same as a diet and lifestyle intervention. It's the same as hypertension medication. 
it's the same as, you know, statin drugs for cardiovascular disease. So it's, you know, I'd rather it be something that you get one injection and, you know, your obesity is gone forever. But unfortunately, it is a drug that requires ongoing treatment, which is certainly a, uh, a drawback. But essentially, anything that you want to be present in your life, you have to continue to do and practice on a regular basis. And like one example would be exercise. So in the research that you were doing with obesity, was there particular exercises that helped or does exercise really have a role in weight loss? So yes, I think it's pretty clear that exercise can cause weight loss. This has been a really controversial topic in the media with like, you know, I think the weight of articles these days have been in the exercise doesn't do anything camp. So, and I think that's overshooting the evidence a little bit, but I think it is true that we have gotten some updates on how effective it is. And it turns out to be less effective than diet by a a wide margin. So if you're just doing one thing, if you're going to do diet or you're going to exercise for weight loss, the diet component is, is going to be much more effective. So, so I think it does cause weight loss in the average person, I should say it, it varies between individuals. It does cause weight loss in the average person. It's not on average, a very large effect. And I think it's important to mention though, there's some other nuances Exercise seems to be pretty effective with weight loss maintenance. So for people who have previously lost weight and who are trying to stay at that lower weight, exercise seems to be more effective than for weight loss to begin with. And I know that seems kind of weird, counterintuitive, but that is what the evidence suggests. So if you're someone who's looking to hang on to that loss, exercise probably should be one of your top strategies. And then the other thing, this is, I would say the evidence is not as strong, but I think it's probably true, is that exercise can prevent people from gaining in the first place, at least to some degree. I'm not saying it's like a silver bullet, but I think it can help people gain less weight over time. And you certainly see this in observational studies, people who exercise gain less weight over time. And you see it in mouse studies where mouse and rat studies where you have them exercise a bunch and then you can put them on a fattening diet and they won't gain as much weight on that diet. Or if you just leave them on their regular diet, they won't experience that kind of slow weight gain that that happens over the course of a long period of time of just getting older. So, And the effect sizes are pretty large in animal models. And then there's human data that's consistent with that. And it's it's observational because we don't have randomized controlled trials that last for 10 years to see whether exercise can stop people from gaining weight. It's not really feasible. But what you see is that in people who are the most sedentary, so people who really don't exercise very much at all, there is a an apparent dysregulation of appetite is what happens. So people who have a very low level of physical activity inappropriately overconsume calories. And if you look at people who exercise more than that, like if you go from the very sedentary to just the somewhat sedentary category, calorie intake actually goes down. So those people eat less 
than the very sedentary category. And then as exercise goes up and up and up, calorie intake goes up. So it's, there's kind of like this zone where you get a disconnect between the amount that your body needs and the amount that you're eating just because, I mean, I'm not sure anybody really knows, but something about being very sedentary just doesn't play well with the appetite circuits. And you see that. So you see it in human observational studies and you see it in tightly controlled rodent studies. So it's not a home run, but I think when you put those things together, you can say that probably there's something there. It's so interesting because it makes me think of clients like where their story is like, you know, I didn't have an issue with this until after high school, after college, when I stopped playing whatever sport. But the other thing too, like you said about the very sedentary and the caloric intake being, and then as you go up, and then I think about the clients that I work with that are all basically like exercise bulimia is going on, right? And they're taking in so little and then every bit that they do take in and they're weighing themselves every day. So they're like, I'm up, I'm up, I'm up, I'm up. And it just, it makes sense. It's almost like the flip, right? It's like two sides of the same coin. Like something has like the snapback effect that's happening and you're seeing it in these models. And it's just so interesting. Thank you for bringing that up. We really wanted to know about body set point because last time you talked to us about body set point and how it can change, like once we kind of cross this threshold, it increases. Is there a way to set it back where our set point becomes something lower? I mean, is that possible? And then do things like cold plunges and red light therapy and and those kinds of things that we're seeing more and more of now by the influencers out there on social media, like do those things impact it? Could those be helpful in, you know, resetting that set point, that thermostat? Yeah. So I'll take a step back first and just explain what it is to make sure that everybody's following along. So the idea is that our body fatness, the amount of fat that we carry on our bodies is actually something that's regulated by the brain in the same way that the brain regulates a lot of other things in the body, including body temperature. And so the brain regulates a bunch of stuff. This has nothing to do with your personality or what you're thinking about. It's not under your control. It's just like, just as automatic as like your digestive processes. And the set point refers to what level of body fatness that system is regulating around. So if you're someone who is not actively trying to change your weight or you're not, you know, you haven't been previously dieting, you're probably at your set point right now. If you're someone who recently lost a lot of weight, you might be below your set point and that type of person will tend to regain weight over time unless they're, you know, really like actively managing that situation. And I do want to just briefly acknowledge it's a little academic, but not everyone agrees with this word set point that I use. I just want to acknowledge that I'm using it because it's like easy to understand and easy to communicate. But the basic idea is that there's regulation happening that's trying to keep your body fatness around a certain certain level. And so the idea, the question you asked is, can you change that? It can definitely change. I mean, most of us gain weight with age, so it can definitely change in that direction. But I'm sure you were asking about the other direction, which is more challenging because the system fights weight loss. It appears to fight weight loss more vigorously than it fights weight gain, at least in most people. And yeah, I think there are a number of things that you can do to lower your set point. So 
I think that essentially anything, any intervention that you do that causes you to spontaneously eat fewer calories without having to count and track your calories is an intervention that is probably affecting your set point. So it's that provides evidence. If you're losing weight, you're not counting your calories, yet you're eating less and comfortably at a lower weight, that's probably something that has lowered your set point. And so I think a variety of weight loss diets can do this. I think low-carb diets lower the set point. I think low-fat diets lower the set point. I think that these new drugs like semaglutide, Wegovy, probably lower the set point, although I think we need more evidence on that. And uh, bariatric surgery definitely lowers the set point. So, you know, if you have someone who lost that much weight just by calorie restriction, they would be a very different person than someone who lost that by a bariatric surgery. They would be experiencing this pronounced starvation response that the brain kicks in when someone loses a ton of weight. They would have a reduction in metabolic rate. They would have a dramatic increase in appetite and reduction in satiety. They would be very tuned into food cues around them, especially for calorie-dense foods. And that's just not what we see. People with bariatric surgery do have changes in food preferences, but it's in the opposite direction. Like people who... They're not as interested in calorie-dense processed foods anymore. They're more interested in fruits and vegetables and lower calorie-density foods. So, And this is the same thing you see in animals. And if you do it to a rat, you will see the same thing. And so it's not just about them trying to eat healthier. There is a change, a regulatory change that happens as a result of that surgery. And so that results in altered food preferences and altered intake. And so... Yeah. So I actually think there are a lot of things you can do. I think physical activity to some extent, even though it doesn't cause a lot of weight loss, I think it can help. So I think there are a lot of things you can do to reduce that defended level of body fatness. And I think that the advantage of that, the advantage of using a strategy like that over just simply like restricting calories, like let's say you just take the food that you're normally eating, you don't change anything about it qualitatively but you just eat less of it. So the, you know, portion control, and I'm, I'm not knocking it, you know, if people use it and it works for them, that's fine. But I think the disadvantage there is that you're not changing your set point. And so you're going to get more resistance from those non-conscious parts of your brain that are trying to regulate. Whereas if you're using an approach that doesn't require that kind of portion control strategy, you're kind of bringing those systems along with you. And so I think to me, that seems like a more, it's going to probably be a more sustainable situation for, for most people. But again, I mean, to me, like just very basic empirical, you know, whatever works for somebody, I'm not going to argue with. And so if somebody gets value from calorie restriction, that's totally fine. I just think for most people, that's probably not the going to be the the most productive strategy to, to start with first. No, that's, I mean, that's so helpful to hear because I think, you know, so many people are focused on these strategies. And I really think what I'm hearing is these strategies are just really setting us up for a bit of failure. And that is not the medical interventions, right? The Those are tools, but it's interesting that you have to physically manipulate the body or go on these medications to change the brain in order to lower your body set point. And so therefore, should we be maybe working on 
more body acceptance of us being at a certain size and being watching out for diet culture, weight loss culture, you know, just really driving us to continue to restrict when it affects, you know, it's really feels like sometimes a bit of a losing battle. Well, I mean, I fully support people trying to feel good in their own bodies, no matter what their body looks like, you know, and I think that is a valuable goal. The only thing that I become concerned about is when that, that crosses over into denying the health impacts of having a lot of body fat. I think, you know, I don't want to make anybody feel bad about their body. However, I want people to understand what the risks are and then they can make informed choices about it. And so, you know, being straightforward about what the risks are and then not judging people, not stigmatizing them based on what their body shape is. That's the approach that I prefer. But I think that, so I don't think it's hopeless. I don't think weight loss is hopeless. I think that there are, you know, regulatory systems in the brain that oppose weight loss. And I think that those do make it harder. And I think that people should know that, you know, I think people should know that because it helps them understand what's going on and it helps them be easier on themselves. Cause I think a lot of people have this framing, like we implicitly assume that we are like the, you know, our conscious mind is like the commander of everything that's happening internal and externally. And anything that like becomes out of our control is like a failure of our, you know, of, of us and our identity And I just don't think that's really how the brain is set up. I think there's a lot of stuff that's happening that's not under our control and, and that we have to struggle against. And so I think understanding that is, is helpful for people. But the other thing I want to say is that, you know, diets can be more or less effective. And when I say diets, I mean, weight loss diets. And one of the things that's really key is support. And so if someone is doing a self-directed diet program, like if you just throw a book at them and, you know, or even don't throw a book at them, you know, you just say you need to lose weight, eat less or something. That's probably going to be a a situation that has a pretty low probability of success. But now we have these more structured programs that I think are getting better and better as online platforms are scaling up and becoming more effective where you can deliver more effective support to people more cost effectively. And so I think that's a key thing is if you want good results, it's important to, you know, not only select an effective strategy, but have really good ongoing support. And I think if you do that, you can, you know, I I don't think a person who has, who weighs like a hundred extra pounds is necessarily should necessarily expect to lose all hundred of those extra pounds, but you could lose enough to improve your health. You could lose enough to, you know, move better and have more energy. So I think there are things that are accessible to a person with obesity, even if they don't want to go on to one of these drugs or have bariatric surgery. So I don't want to make it seem like it's totally hopeless, but the other thing is that you know, this new drug Wegovy is really, really effective. And right now the main problem with it is it's expensive. And so, but this is part of a wave of new weight loss 
obesity therapies that are being developed. And there's all these other drugs that are currently in the clinical development pipeline, some of which are pretty far down the pipeline and doing really well. Like Molly, you mentioned terzepatide, the one by Eli Lilly. That one is probably very soon going to be approved for type 2 diabetes. And there were recently trial results for obesity where people taking this drug at the highest dose lost 21% of their body weight, which is huge. Bariatric surgery usually is 25 to 33%. And that's the most effective tool there is for weight loss. So I think in terms of the medical management of obesity between these more structured programs and the new drugs that are coming online, I think there is a bright future for medical management of obesity. Well, thank you for that. Um, I am curious, both Molly and I sit on a board that has recently applied to the International Classification of Diseases to have, you know, processed food, hyper processed food addiction recognized. And hopefully, you know, we talked a bit about the DSM, our hopes obviously being it gets in there someday. I was curious what, if you believe or think this may happen, obviously, you know, we, I think we can all agree where the research isn't there yet, but do you think at some point there will be, you know, hyper-processed food coming with warning labels or, would this somehow be blocked by, you know, these companies coming up with these new obesity meds? Yeah, I think, well, I, I don't think the companies coming up with the obesity meds are, are probably going to do that. But I think that, you know, this is, again, one of these issues where, like, if we accept it's true, the implications are so huge that they're very challenging to some people. Like, I think... You know, if we accept that food addiction is real, then that does suggest we probably should have warning labels on certain kinds of food, right? And that I think that's just like a mind-blowing implication to some people that they wouldn't want to accept, even if it's like totally justified. And so, yeah, I just wanted to start with that. But I want to point out that the DSM-5, which is the latest version of this manual for diagnosing mental diseases in the U.S., it... Uh, they recently added gambling disorder. So typically the addiction sections, traditionally they focused on drug addiction. Gambling disorder is the first so-called non-substance addiction that they have added to the, to the DSM. And they, they talked about adding food addiction. They didn't add it in the DSM-5, as you know. Um, so I'm not privy to the conversations that are happening right now around whether it should be added or not. So I don't know exactly where those are, but I do want to point out that for gambling disorder, they provided a very specific rationale for adding that. And I'm going to just look this up to make sure I'm giving you the right information here. So if you read in DSM-5, the stated reasons for including gambling addiction are one, Gambling activates reward systems in the brain. And two, some of its symptoms resemble those of substance use disorders. And food activates reward systems in the brain. We know that. That's basically what those systems evolved for is to help motivate us to get food. And it also, you know, as we know from the research from Ashley Gearhart and others, it has it causes symptoms similar to in some people it can cause symptoms similar to to drug addiction 
So like, you know, if you look at gambling, not everyone who gambles develops a gambling addiction. It's only a, a, you know, a certain subset of people who have a particular susceptibility and then they do this and it's just like, you know, it's a little too much for their particular brain and it can be really bad. And same with food. Like most people don't have food addiction, but there's a certain percentage of people where they will develop addiction like behaviors towards certain types of foods. And I don't think that is really disputed. I don't think either of those things is really disputed. And so to me, like if they're adding gambling addiction to the DSM, I don't, for those specific reasons, I don't see why they wouldn't add food addiction as well. But again, I'm not privy to the discussions on that. So So I don't know exactly where that conversation is, but I will say that, you know, the DSM, as far as my limited understanding, seems like it's adding more things over time. And so I think it's certainly very conceivable, at least to me, that it would end up making an appearance at some point. Oh, it's so nice to end these things on this hopeful note. You know, we're hopeful about interventions. We're hopeful about changes that we can make and then hopeful about, you know, I guess this change even on a, on a larger scale where we know it's like Clarissa said, the research isn't quite there yet to the standards because we did get a rejection from the world health organization. But to hear what you just said, you know, about like the rationale for the gambling disorder and to know that they mentioned food addiction at some point in the appendix or whatever it was they were, they were mentioning it. in. so, We just appreciate your time so much for giving us a second hour. And I have more questions for you that I even wrote down that we're never going to get to, but I might send you an email and see if you have answers for them anyway, because I'm just so interested in hearing what you know about all of this. So thank you again so very much. We so appreciate you. And yes, please keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.